I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, excited to have uh, a guest who I met many years ago, but we haven't connected in a while. So I uh, wanted to uh, welcome Justin Tuin to the uh, the podcast. Justin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to see you again. Yeah, you too. Absolutely. It's uh, the last time I was on a beach, right? So uh, I'm sure uh, we'd both rather be uh, there than here. But, uh, you know, nature of the beast is what it is. So, so Justin is the co-founder and CEO of uh, LoisRates.ca, is one of the fastest-growing companies in North America. I actually saw something that you posted the other day that said you helped Canadians save uh, over a billion dollars, which is really interesting. And we'll dive into uh, lowest rates at some point for sure. Justin was ranked uh, in the top 15 on McLean's Canadian Business uh, Growth 500 for five years in a row, or is it six now, Justin? I don't know, losing count. You're losing count. That's, that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You know, he's an expert in personal finance, entrepreneurship, uh, fe- featured frequently in the media. Uh, contributions include BNN, Global Mail, CBC, uh, the list goes on. So again, Justin, thanks so much for uh, for joining me. Yeah, looking forward to chatting. So, so Justin, I'd like to start these off, uh, you know, for those that, 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 that don't know you, you know, maybe just touch upon, you know, what you do at lowest rates. And then we're going to take a step way back and we're going to talk about you know, how you got there. So, so maybe just give us a synopsis on, on, on lowest rates and how you got your start. So lowestrates.ca, the easiest way to describe it is it's like Expedia. So it's a comparison site, but instead of comparing flights and hotels, we compare personal financial items. So Canadians across the country can compare car insurance quotes, home insurance quotes, mortgage quotes, And then everything else from credit cards to life insurance to personal loans. And our goal is to help people save time and save money. So to be able to compare the market, find the best price and the best offer for their unique needs, and essentially stop having them waste money by paying more than they need to on personal financial products. So so they become their own broker in a way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's what we do. And as you said, you know, we're very proud since we've launched, we've saved Canadians over a billion dollars in interest and fees by using the site, you know, last year alone, because we're growing quickly, we saved Canadians close to 500 million just in 2020 alone. And that's meaningful because, you know, we're in this pandemic, personal finances are at the forefront of people's minds and we're proud to be able to have saved that money. You know, and that's money that's being saved without money needing to be given by the government or anything else. That's, you know, we feel like we're doing our part to help Canadians and and help the economy. And we're really proud of that. So let's take a step back. I mean, you're obviously passionate about what you do. You're you're an entrepreneur. I mean, how did you get to this point? Talk about your childhood. Like, was the writing on the wall pretty early on or was this kind of a later found passion to, to build something on your own? Yeah, it was really an accident. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't realize it, but I had entrepreneurs as role models. My parents were entrepreneurs. They run their own clothing company, but I never really thought of them as as entrepreneurs. 
I didn't really even understand what an entrepreneur was. I don't think I took the time to understand what my parents did. So I went to private school in Vancouver, all boys private school from grade two to 12. And it was very focused on getting you into a good university. And at that university, you were gonna do something that got you to be a doctor or a lawyer or to work for an investment bank or an accounting firm or, or, or you know, P&G marketing firm. So that was really what I thought a career looked like. I didn't really think about being an entrepreneur. So I graduated from high school. I went to university. I took a commerce degree at Queens, you know, from 1996 to 2000. And there was really nothing about being an entrepreneur then. It was all about, like I said, getting into whether it's investment banking or accounting or consulting or marketing. With parents as entrepreneurs, why why was that that they didn't kind of impart that into you and kind of put you down the traditional path? Because I think it was very hard for them. So, you know, we moved to Vancouver when I was four and, you know, they were very fortunate in terms of buying at a low point in Vancouver real estate and then kind of riding the waves. But we had to move a lot of times because they couldn't afford to pay the mortgage because of, you know, bumps in the clothing company. And I know they worked really hard and I know that there was, there was stress to do with it. And I think they didn't want to put me through that. Probably. We haven't really talked about that very much. Probably good conversation to have the next time I see them. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to see them for a while, but it, it's a good conversation, but they really wanted to give me every opportunity. So they, they spent the money on this private school that they probably couldn't afford. They made sure that, you know, I went to a, a, you know, a good university and they really wanted me to go into something that would guarantee me a career. So my choices were, you know, I had to go into commerce or I had to go into sciences so I could become a doctor. You know, I wanted to go into arts and, and figure out what I wanted to do. And they said, no, you're not doing that. <laughs> and so, you know, I was still listening, listening to my parents at 18 years of age. So I went into commerce didn't really have any interest in commerce, didn't know anything about commerce. I was 18, didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, at that point, I was a very um, highly ranked tennis player. So, you know, I harbored dreams of being, you know, a, a tennis player professionally. But, you know, they said, look, Justin, you're, if, if you continue this route, you're going to be a tennis pro. Nothing wrong with that, but you're not going to be a professional tennis player, right? You're not going to be in the ATP tour in the top 10. So they said, look, if you go into commerce, you're going to get a great degree and you're going to get a job guaranteed coming out of that. And so that's what I did. I went into the commerce program. After four years, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I joined a management training program. So an executive training program at Maple Leaf Foods, Canada's biggest food company. And I got to do different things. I did consumer marketing one year. I did sales one year and I did finance one year. After that, Still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I applied to get my joint law MBA degree at U of T, got in there. But at the same time, um, some colleagues from Maple Leaf Foods moved into the online gambling industry and were working for a company called Cryptologic, which at the time was the largest publicly traded internet gambling company in the world. I didn't know anything about the internet that much at that point in time or gambling, but I thought it was a good opportunity. And so I joined there as product manager, worked my way up, stayed there for about 10 years, ended up the number two at the company in charge of all product, all business development, spent about three weeks per month in the UK 
And that's where I was introduced to these financial rate comparison sites. Because in the UK, it's just a way of life. People compare mortgages and insurance the same way people in Canada compare flights and hotels. So that's where I got the idea for lowest rate. And why wasn't that happening in Canada, in your opinion? Because it seems like such a basic concept, but you know, it's amazing when, when I look around the world, because I think one of the entrepreneurs always ask me, or wannabe entrepreneurs always ask me, like, what's the best way to start a business? And one of the things I always say to them is like, look around the world and look at business models that are working elsewhere that should work here. Because I think it's a great way of you know, starting a business with a model that is clearly proven somewhere else. And that's not to say it's going to work in Canada, but it's uh, probably has a higher likelihood than a random idea. Yeah, it gives it a way better chance if there's precedent somewhere else. And so I thought there was precedent in two ways. In other countries like the UK and Australia and the US, these sorts of financial rate comparison companies were quite ubiquitous. There were many, many of them that were worth over a billion dollars. So I knew that this concept worked in other countries. And also I knew in Canada that people liked choice. If you look at every other aspect of their life, whether it's flights or hotels, you know, they go to Expedia or Trivago or whatever. If it comes to cars, they go to Auto Trader. When it comes to everyday items, they go to Amazon. They want choice. And where do they spend most of their disposable income? On personal financial items, their mortgage, their insurance, their credit card interest. So why wouldn't you want choice in those arenas? Why wouldn't you want to stop burning money and start saving money? And to answer your question, why were these sites not more prevalent in Canada? I think it's because of the, the hold that the big six banks have on the Canadian psyche. They've been around for hundreds of years. They spend so much money on marketing and Canadians think that the banks have their best interests at heart, that you can just walk into a local Royal Bank branch and that they're going to give you the best offer right off the bat. And that's not the case. And so financial literacy is so low in Canada. They don't teach it at school. They don't teach it at university. The government. I was going to dive into that and I want to dive into that, but because I totally agree with you, I think that the, that's going to be a, a topic of conversation as we continue this, uh, this podcast. But I want to go back to something you had spoken about and it's to do with your, your tennis career. And that may be a, a, you know, why am I bringing that up? I'm a, I'm a massive believer that some patterns, like I see certain patterns. And, and one of those patterns is that, there's a lot of successful individuals that played some sport very competitively. How do you think, you know, being in a competitive environment early on through sports helps you become a better entrepreneur, better leader, better person? Maybe speak about your experience and some of the things that you took from that, because it's definitely, uh, you know, I, I've definitely seen some commonality around backgrounds in competitive sports leading to success in other arenas. Well, I'm a really competitive person. I can't stand losing and I'll do almost anything not to lose. And I think that there's big benefit in both individual sports as well as team sports. So team sports. So I played all kinds of team sports. I, I love sports still today. So I played soccer, I played basketball, you, you name it, I played the sport. And so from team sports, I learned how to work with others. I learned how to lead others and I learned how to you know, work together so that the sum of the parts is greater than the individual, right? The individuals within a team. And so I thought that that was really important for, you know, building a team and growing a team and just living life in general. But tennis, which is the sport that I was best at, an individual sport, there's no excuses. You're out there, you're by yourself. If you lose, 
It's your fault. If you miss the shot, it's your fault. There's nowhere to hide. You have to really wrestle your demons in your mind because tennis is mostly mental. There's so many people that can go out there, out there and hit the ball hard and move and return the ball, but it's all in your mind. You have to, you have to believe in yourself. You have to be confident in your abilities. You have to be confident in your plan. I think it just teaches you so much. It teaches you so much resiliency. It teaches you mental toughness. And I had to bring all of those things into building a company from scratch because there's so many obstacles that you have to overcome. There's so many excuses that you could, you could accept for failure. And you just have to ignore all of those and say, look, I'm going to figure this out the same way that you have to figure out you know, beating different tennis opponents who bring different things at you. So I think you're right. I think a lot of the skills I learned as a high-level tennis player have served me really well at building my own company. You know, we're probably not too dissimilar in age. And, and when I grew up, being competitive and was, was a good thing. And, you know, you mentioned this idea of, like, you can't stand losing. I'm the same way. But in today's environment, you know, you have children, I have children, you know, one of the things that, that, that I can't stand is this culture of everyone gets a participation medal or a ribbon. You know, what do you think about that and how it's going to impact, you know, the next generation? Because I really feel like this idea that, you know, life is fair and that everyone gets a participation medal is, is wildly disservicing our, our youth because that's not the reality of life. Yeah, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. I think what's important for me, I want my kids to try a lot of different things and I don't want them to be dissuaded if they're not successful at first because I think naturally they are very competitive, both my kids, because I think they see it in me. But what I say to them is you have to try your hardest. That's what you can control. You can control your effort and your preparation. As long as you put forth maximum effort and you prepare yourself, I won't be disappointed if the outcome isn't what you hoped. I tell them, look, as long as you try your hardest, I'm going to be proud of you. If you fail, that's okay, right? So I, th I don't think necessarily with kids it's important to put the priority on winning. I tell them, look, winning matters. Winning matters, but winning is the outcome of effort and preparation. It just doesn't come easily. It doesn't come on your own. So I think I've kind of have a, have a hybrid model in, in terms of saying, look, winning does matter and you shouldn't be rewarded just for participation, but you should be rewarded for participation if you're trying your hardest and you're preparing, because if you do those things, you're far more likely to win. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that learning from losing is an important part of the puzzle. I mean, it, it, it makes you better and you, you, I think it's super important to know that there are other talented individuals out there and that it's not going to just be easy and that that doesn't matter how smart you are you have to work hard i tell my kids that because they get frustrated if something doesn't come easily to them and i say look guys hard work is what separates the people who are successful from not successful if you don't work hard you're not going to be successful and if it was easy everyone would be doing it i said the good things in life take a lot of effort and you need to learn that early because if you don't you're going to be setting yourself up for failure moving forward so so, so going back to you know being in the uk seeing those those websites i mean it's interesting people always ask me you know like what does it take to be an entrepreneur you know, what does it take to start a business and it's it's amazing and, and maybe you'll agree maybe you'll disagree but i find that a lot of people have good ideas and i think what separates some from others is that some people don't do anything about it and some do something about it uh, and it sounds simple, but the act of doing 
And just like the, the starting point is almost always the hardest. So talk to me about that transition to say, okay, I'm going to actually do this now. Yeah, it was difficult because I was doing really well in the online gaming world. I was a senior executive. I was making good money. But they said, look, you need to move to Europe. This is where all our customers are. You're spending three weeks per month here anyway. But I wasn't prepared to move to Europe. We just had our first child. My wife's a doctor here. And so that was it. They said, Justin, you're done. If, if you don't want to move to Europe, you're done. So I found myself out of a job in Toronto trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I didn't jump directly to lowestrates.ca because while I had in the back of my mind, the fact that these rate comparison sites were so prevalent in other countries kind of percolating back there, I didn't jump to it right away. So I spent about a year trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I did consulting in the online gaming world and in some consumer packaged goods, realized I hated consulting because I didn't like suggesting ideas and not being able to see them through. And then we were redoing our mortgage at, the, at that point, And my bank said, yeah, sorry, I can't give you the same rate. And I said, well, that, that doesn't make much sense. Rates haven't increased, so why not? And they said, sorry, I can't do it. So I spent about a week calling different banks and I got a way lower rate, brought it back to my existing bank. And they're like, okay, Justin, yeah, we'll give you the lower rate. And I said, well, why didn't you do that in the first place? And they said, well, it's just the way it is. We didn't have to do it in the first place, right? Like, I guess the person I was dealing with was at least honest. They said, look, we're, we're here to be profitable. And if we can charge you more, we will charge you more. I mean, probably not what, what the bank uh, manager wants the person to be saying, but I just put two and two together. It kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Everything in the back of my mind from the UK, in terms of these things are hugely popular. And then my own personal experience, whereby I said, this is way too hard. There should be a way faster and easier way to do this. Hit me like a ton of bricks. And I said, let's do this. And so it should have been that simple and I should have been going. But then you've got my wife, who's a doctor, who said, Justin, this is a terrible idea. You know, her parents are teachers. She's not entrepreneurial at all. She's, she, she wasn't comfortable with me starting something new and especially not comfortable going against the behemoths that are the big banks. You know, you asked earlier, why aren't these sites prevalent in Canada? It's because people like her, an educated doctor, thinks that the banks are the only option, the only option you can trust. If you go outside the banks, you're going to get ripped off. You're going to lose your money. And that's not the case. And so she thought it was a, her word, stupid idea. So I pushed through that and I said, look, this is a good idea, Susan. We're going to do this. But she wouldn't even let us use any of her own money. So I had to go and get $150,000. I went and raised $150,000 at a million dollar valuation. It was just an idea at the time. We had nothing. So I said, you know, a million dollars seems fair. And we started with that $150,000. And we said, we either turn this into something or if the 150,000 goes to zero in the bank account, then we're done. And I go back and get a real job again. <laughs> so, so, so what are the biggest learnings? I mean, you know, the, the, those first days are never what you expect. Right. I mean, they're usually tougher. Things are usually slower. You know, what are the, some of the things that you kind of have learned along the way? You know, for those listening that that that, you know, they hear about the five years in a row, fastest growing. And they hear like I think the problem that a lot of these young entrepreneurs, you hear the success stories, but you don't hear the, the shit that goes, you know, behind this that goes on behind the scenes. So so maybe just talk about some of the things that you have to overcome. You know, outside of your wife's disapproval, which is a big yeah. one. <laughs> well, 
Firstly, I went from making half a million dollars a year to literally paying myself nothing for three years in a row. I went from working in an office where I literally had the, you know, there, there's the cliche that, that, that these big wig executives have putting greens in their office. I had a putting green in my office. So I went from a big office with a bloody putting green in it to working in a basement with no windows, a shared office that we called the dungeon. I was using a computer that had a crack in the screen. Like I was doing all the jobs from CEO to head of sales, head of marketing, head of product to garbage person. <laughs> and, you know, we, we were hiring people right out of university because we couldn't afford to pay someone more than $30,000, right? We had $150,000. If it went down to zero, we were done. And how close did you get to zero? Like within $20,000 within 20,000. So, but we had to really focus. So we said, okay, we're going to focus on car insurance. So, cause we could have focused on any different vertical. We said, we're going to focus on car insurance. So we focused there. And then we said, okay, well, we don't have a website. We don't have any quotas to compare. We have no partners and we have no one coming to the site. So where's our focus going to be there? And what we said is we're going to focus on how we get people to the website. So we decided we're going to focus on Google organic search. How do we get into the organic search rankings? So the rankings that don't cost you anything for people to see you. And then how do we do everything else for free? So we decided that, okay, we're going to build a website really cheap and we're going to white label other people's solutions. So we started by white labeling a competitor called Kinetics's car insurance uh, comparison quota. We got them to kind of put the lowest rates.ca logo on it put it on our site. And really for the first couple of years, all our focus was, was getting up the organic Google rankings. That was our entire focus. How do we get people to come to the site? Because unless we can get people to come to the site, we're never going to make any money. And we didn't want to raise any more money. We wanted to always grow using cash flows. And the only way to do that was getting people to our site for free. So we tried to find as many ways to get people to the site for free as possible. And then the ball started rolling. Once we got up the Google rankings, got people to come to the site for free, then we, then we said, okay, we don't need Kinetics anymore. We're going to build our own quotas. We're going to find our own partners in insurance companies and insurance brokers. And then we're going to build a property insurance quota and a mortgage quota. And then the snowball just kind of rolled. We made more money. We made more investments. We hired better people. But we always stayed profitable because since that $150,000, we've never put another cent of investment back into the company. We've always used cash flows. And, and that's partly because I kind of put my head in the sand and just focused growing the company as opposed to being part of the entrepreneurial ecosystem where raising money seems to be something you get more applause for than actually building. It's like a gauge of success and how much money you need. Exactly. So yeah. I guess I'm not that successful because I haven't raised any money. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> we touched on this idea of people's understandings of personal finance and how, in my opinion, you know, the schooling system does them a massive disservice because people don't come out of school with even a basic level of understanding, uh, you know, as it relates to personal finance. How much of a role does that play in, uh, you know, kind of the growth of your business and, and how much education do you need to go through with the, you know, with potential clients that kind of find themselves on the website? Because I would imagine that a huge part of your, you know, quote unquote marketing is education in nature, educational in nature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biggest impediment to our growth is just awareness 
first of all, that sites like ours exist. And second of all, trust that people can trust what they're seeing on our site because our name isn't a big six bank. I think personal finance or personal financial literacy is the biggest problem that Canada doesn't even know it has. Like most Canadians don't know that they're financially illiterate because they don't even know what financial literacy is, right? They don't know what they don't know. They've never learned it. They just know what their parents taught them or what they hear at the bank or in the media. Or if they're fortunate enough, like me, like I started reading Money Sense magazine and I just kind of learned from there. But yeah, it's, it's huge because if you look at the percentage of people that use our site, it's still you know, less than 20% of the Canadian population even knows about our sites. You know, there's so many people that still walk into the bank, take the first offer they're given and are wasting money and are like, you know, hundreds of dollars in their car insurance and home insurance policy per year, thousands of dollars in money on their mortgage. And why? Just because they don't know any better. And the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because those that are sophisticated and in the know land up paying less. Uh, and saving money than those that actually need to save the money. It's uh, it's, a, exactly. it's incredible. And government raises taxes, and you know it's a great circle. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about you know this idea of of leadership. You've had this interesting career that spans more traditional uh, now, you know, more entrepreneurial. What are some of the lessons that you learned along the way that that others that are trying to become better leaders, become better entrepreneurs? could take from you know some of your experiences Mm -hmm. well i think you know one of the things that you said earlier in terms of if you want to start a company before you jump in you really need to figure out if it's a good idea or not and how do you do that i mean for me the validation came from the fact that in other countries this exact idea worked and then in canada you know, a similar spin to this idea, like in different markets, like the car market or the hotel and the travel market worked also. People wanted choice. So I had a really good feeling because it worked elsewhere that it would work in Canada. That's why I was willing to jump in. That's why, despite all the obstacles, my gut told me that if we work hard enough and are consistent enough in our efforts and are focused, that we would succeed. But I think there's a lot of people that jump into an idea without validating it. They don't know, one, who their target market is. They don't know, two, if their target market wants what they have to sell. Three, they don't know how much their target market is willing to pay for the product and if they're even willing to pay for the product at all. And then four, if they can make money, if they're ever going to be able to be profitable. So like those are the four questions that I urge all entrepreneurs to ask themselves before they jump in. Because you can jump in and you can take money from people, but if you can't answer those four questions... I think you have a lot less chance of being. But, but if it's a novel idea, how does someone go about doing that? Well, look at a similar idea and ask the buyers of that similar product, you know, how much they're paying for that. I don't think there's anything really that novel. It's very difficult to reinvent the wheel. I think there's a lot of iterations on similar ideas, making making ideas better as opposed to reinventing something. If it's truly novel, if it's something that mankind has never seen before, fine different, but I don't think that most entrepreneurs are bringing that to bear. So I I think validation, at least for someone like me, is very important before I sink my life into it and before I take other people's money. Um, And I think that takes me to the second point. I think to be, at least for me, to be successful, I need to be all in. I need to be focused. I couldn't make this my side gig. If I hadn't quit my job, 
gone all in in this and given myself, you know, time and or money to put into this with my sole focus, I wouldn't have been successful. I think it's just too competitive out there if you want to build something large and at scale to think you're going to be able to do it on the side. I totally agree. There's too many talented people out there. No one is smart enough, in my opinion. Maybe Elon Musk, he does a few, a few different things. But if you're not Elon Musk, maybe it's a little more challenging. Yeah, and then, and then I think the next one is you got to be focused. Like we decided to be very focused. So first, in terms of product, we wanted to focus on car insurance. Second, in terms of our area of effort, we wanted to focus on search engine optimization. There's a lot of ways to make money, but I think the difference, I, and I don't remember the quote, but <laughs> someone said the difference between successful people and not very successful people is that successful people say no more often. I don't know if it was Warren Buffett or whatnot. You got to say no a lot because you can get distracted. You have limited resources, limited time. And what we've done is we've set very focused goals. We've executed flawlessly. And once we've hit that goal, we've only then have we moved on to the next. And so maybe we grew more slowly than we would have otherwise, but it's allowed us to grow in a responsible way where we never run out of money. We've been able to grow using the funds that we generate and the cash flow in the company. And it's worked for us. So, so you, you, you touched upon your competitive nature. You touched upon um, this idea of jumping all in. And, and my question to you is, you know, in your opinion, is this born or bred? And, and what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people love to hear this advice that you can be anything you want to be. I don't, I don't subscribe to that ideology. I really believe that people are born with certain skill sets that make them uh, more likely to, you know, be successful in in something over another. And and sometimes that's not always, you know, leadership. Sometimes it's not always entrepreneurship. You know, it doesn't matter how hard I would have tried. I'm not going to become a professional athlete. Um, so so what's your what's your viewpoint? And 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 when you have team members that you're trying to mentor and uh, you know make them the best versions of themselves. How do you give people advice about, you know, playing your strengths or your weaknesses? Yeah, is it born or bred? I think it's a combination. I think I have some intrinsic traits that have enabled me to be successful in what I've done. But I think I've also had a lot of great opportunities, a lot of great teachers, and I've got a lot of good advice. Everyone is not going to be successful at what they want to be successful at. You have to play to your strengths. Like, you know, whenever I talk to people... I really talk about playing up their strengths as opposed to shoring up their weaknesses. Totally agree. Sometimes there's no point shoring up your weaknesses because you're never going to be X, right? But if you're Y, then be the best Y that you can possibly be. And so when I'm coaching people, that's really where I try to amplify their efforts. And look, if I don't think that they can do something that they think they want to do, then I have an honest conversation. I'm a very transparent, open person. And that's how I coach. I say, look, you say you want to go down this path, but do you really think your skill set matches that? I think here's a different path where you could be a superstar. Why don't you focus on that? So, Justin, I'd be remiss to not ask you this question before we uh, end this uh, this interview. I mean, you're you're really close to rates in general. I'm sure there's a lot of people that are saying, "Ask him what he thinks is going to happen." What's you know? So, so what's your opinion on? on mortgage rates it's, uh, and, and, and what else is going on kind of post COVID? Like, what do you think the lasting impact is going to be over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I think mortgage rates are going to stay very low for the medium term. They're probably not going to go up at all, at least variable rates, what the Bank of Canada controls until the end of next year, if not 2023. So whether you're in a fixed rate mortgage or a variable rate mortgage, I think you're going to be good both ways. 
The advice that I always give is choose variable unless you're someone that you can't go to sleep at night if you worry your interest rate's going to go up a little bit. But, but my view is if you're someone like that, then you probably got, got too big of a mortgage in the first place. You know, variable rates are lower than fixed right now by quite a significant margin. It's going to take quite a few rate hikes for them to kind of be in line with fixed. And if you look over the past 50 years, variable's always been better. You know, with variable rate mortgages, you also don't have the penalties that you do with a fixed if you want to break your mortgage early. So, but I wouldn't be worried about rates in general. I don't think they're going to be able to go up. They're not going to go up to where they've been historically because then people won't be, won't be able to afford to pay their mortgage, right? And the Canadian government doesn't want people losing their houses. So are they going to go up from these record lows in the next five years? Yes, they are. But are they going to go up enough to make your life very different? Not really. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you hear stats about how, you know, most Canadians are one paycheck away from being bankrupt. It's, it's going to be tough to, to adjust uh, rates too, too drastically. That's for sure. Well, Justin, really appreciate your time. And for those that want to follow along in your journey, I know that you're very active on LinkedIn, uh, but is there any other uh, kind of platforms that they could follow along? Yeah, check me out on LinkedIn. Check out lowestrates.ca and love to answer anyone's questions and, 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 and chat with them. Justin, very much appreciate your time and until next time, thanks. Thanks so much. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.